At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, friends, as we begin this ministry year, we have been talking about our mission or purpose as a church. At Wildwood, we believe the scripture teaches us that we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. And over these first few weeks of the semester, we have been reminding each other of some of the key areas of opportunity we have as a church. We call them at Wildwood our four fours, that we have the opportunity to be for the next generation following Jesus together with us, thinking here about children and and middle school and high school students and even college students, passing on to the next generation, faith in Christ. And then we've talked about being for the church. We're for all of us following Jesus and, and growing in our faith and in our relationship with him. But today we're going to talk about the third and the fourth part of our four fours, and that is how we can also be for the community and for the nations. So we're going to see that this morning in our time together. But before we look at those things, I want to just take a moment and reflect with you about growth. You realize that healthy things grow? They just do. Healthy things grow. People who are healthy intellectually grow in their understanding of the world around them. People who are healthy relationally grow in their expressions of love to those they know and in their hospitality to those that they are just meeting. People who are, are, are healthy even spiritually begin to grow and continue to grow throughout their time of abiding in Christ. And that's really what we talked about last week. We talked about how as we gather around Jesus and as we submit our lives to him and as we serve those around us, that our faith in God and our love for others is increasing. Healthy things grow. This is true relationally, intellectually, even physically. You know, my my son uh, was born at 31 weeks, and he weighed three pounds. Today, he weighs more than three pounds. Um, So healthy things grow. We know this in all these different facets of life. But when it comes to us as a church, not only is there a component of the growth inside of our church family being our growth and devotion to Christ... But also, friends, healthy churches grow numerically because Jesus desires for the lost to be found, for people who are far from him to be drawn to him, whether they're in our community or whether they're on the other side of the world, as a, as a church, a healthy church grows numerically. This morning, we're going to look a little more in depth at how that happens and how we might connect to it, each of us individually and as a church, as we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Just a single verse today. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn to Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. I want to read this verse for us, and then after I read it, uh, I'll back up and ask three questions that this passage will help us make sense of how we might be for our community and for the nations following Jesus with us to the glory of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is talking to his disciples And he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
Now, in this one verse, we see something about being for our community and for the nations. But I want us to, to understand it better by asking three questions of this passage. What are they? The first question I want to ask is this. Is Jesus' main thing our main thing? Is Jesus' main thing our main thing? Now, in, in understanding this better, we need to get the context of the verse that I just read. So let's look at what happens just before it and what occurs right after Acts 1-8. What happens right before it is Acts 1-3, where it says that Jesus presented himself alive to them, to his disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what is the timestamp here? The timestamp here is after Jesus' earthly life, after his sacrificial death on the cross, offering his life to pay the penalty for our sins, and after his resurrection from the dead three days later. After his resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples many times over a, a season of about 40 days so that the disciples would become absolutely convinced that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected from the dead. So Jesus is appearing to them, and Jesus is teaching many things. That's what happened before verse 8. What happens right after verse 8? What happens right after verse 8 is verse 9, if you're, you're counting. Um, it says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So what happens right after this is Jesus ascends back to heaven. So what happens then in verse 8? What's the significance of it? It's Jesus what? It's his last words. And this is quite significant for us to remember. Kent Hughes will say this. He says, these were Jesus' final earthly words. It has been 2,000 years, and Jesus has not during that time planted his feet on terra firma and audibly addressed his followers. Perhaps that silence is intended to prevent anything from obscuring Jesus' last words so that they will continue to reverberate in the church's ears. Friends, is, is Acts 1-8 reverberating in your ears today? Perhaps it should be. The final words of Jesus as he addresses his church, as it is preserved for us to hear today as his followers. So let's look now at verse 8. When we look at verse 8, I want to draw attention to the very first word in verse 8, the word but. Anytime you see that word, you, you have to ask the question, why is that but there? What, what's, it, what's its purpose? What is it accomplishing? It is drawing a contrast, but a contrast with what? Well, we need to look back at the verses immediately preceding this. Looking at verses 6 and 7, we find out what Jesus is contrasting it says, so when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked Jesus this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, is, is it at this time that you're going to establish a reign upon the earth? Is it at, at this moment that you're going to kick those Romans all the way back to Rome? Is it at this moment that you're going to make Israel great again? I mean, they had the hats and everything. Is, is this the moment? Is it going to happen now? That's what they're asking. Now, it's, it's not a total non sequitur. What had Jesus been teaching for 40 days? 
For 40 days, Jesus had been teaching about a number of things, and one of them was about the coming of the kingdom. And so, given that context, they're, they're thinking, okay, is now the moment? Is now the time? Is the kingdom going to be established upon the earth? Is heaven going to come down in your rule and reign experienced by all? Is that what's going to happen now? Well, how does Jesus answer? Jesus answered and said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What's Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying is, guys, I don't want you to spend all of your time filling out your end times chart. Guys, I don't want you to spend all of your time taking an issue that I've even talked about and elevating it to the most important thing. Jesus is saying, I want to prioritize for you what your lives should be about in this moment, in this era, until I come again. And so he says that what we are to do is we are to be about something else. I, I love what... John Stott says about this, he says, the secret things belong to God, and we should not pry into them. It is the revealed things which belong to us, and with these we should rest content. There are many mysteries of God, things that we don't have all of the information about, but rather than us spending our time hypothesizing and speculating, there are some very clear things that God has called us to do, and we should spend our time doing them engaging in that activity. So what is the thing that we are to do? If we're not to spend our time speculating on these theological issues, what is it that we are to do? Well, he makes it clear. We're to be his witnesses. That's what we're to do. We're to be his witnesses. Now, when he says that we're to be witnesses, this is a a significant thing because in order for someone to be a witness, something has to happen right? Something has to happen for someone else to be a witness of it. If we don't meet today, then no one can be a witness as to what transpired this morning at Wildwood. But because we have met, you all now are witnesses to what happened here. In the, in the, in the same way, something had happened in the first century. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had come down and dwelt among them. He had preached sermons. He had done miracles. And ultimately, he had offered his life as a sacrifice upon the cross. On the third day, he rose again, offering life to all who believed in his name. Something had happened. And the disciples were, as witnesses of that event, to now go and give testimony of it to those that they interacted with in the world. They were to be witnesses. And friends, You and I are to be witnesses as well to what Jesus has done in history as well as for what he has done in our lives. This is further, you know, extrapolated when we look at the Great Commission in Matthew's gospel. You know, some have looked at this and and look at what Jesus said in Matthew 28 and they compare it to Acts 1 and they think that one of those disciples must have it wrong. But the reality is, in those 40 days that Jesus met with the disciples, He gave them the Great Commission over and over and over again. Matthew 28, the conversation happens in Galilee. Acts chapter 1, the conversation happens on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem. Again and again and again in different settings, Jesus is giving them the same message in different words. 
Back in Matthew's gospel, he he tells them that their witness basically is going to help make followers of Christ, helping people be baptized as they begin to follow Jesus, and then helping them to understand what Jesus has taught so that they might live a life obedient to him. You see, we are called to be witnesses of Christ. Now, when we see this phrase, be witnesses, it's important for us to remember what Jesus is not saying. What does, he, what does he not say here in being a witness? Well, he's not telling them that they're to go out and start a new religion. He's not telling them that they're to, to go out and create a bunch of new content. He's not telling them that they're to be individually very, very interesting or to individually become famous. What he is saying is, everywhere you go, I want you to point people where? To them? No, they're to point people back to Christ. They are to be witnesses of Jesus and who he was and all that he had done. This is what it means to be a witness. And and the role of witness, by extension, applies to each one of us today. We are called to bear witness and to give testimony to who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what he is offering to the world. When you think about this word witness, it's not a word that is used only here in Acts 1.8. It's actually a word that is used very frequently in the New Testament. 147 times this word witness is used in its noun or verb form. It is a very important word in the New Testament because it is what Christ wants to have reverberating in our ears. We are to be his witnesses in this age until he returns again. The disciples understood this. When they were on trial, Peter and John in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4 said this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, Sanhedrin, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They were just giving witness of who Jesus was. They couldn't stop it because it was so significant. It had so captivated their attention. They couldn't stop talking about Christ and what he had done. In Acts chapter 10, Peter would make this statement. He says that Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Friends, we are to bear witness just as Peter and John before us. We are to provide testimony to point people back to Christ. Now, with that context, let me ask the question again. Is Jesus' main thing our main thing? Is Jesus' main thing our main thing? Are we majoring on being a testimony and a a witness of Christ? Or have we taken some other secondary issue and we have placed it to a level of primary importance for our lives? Are we a critic of the church? Are we a, a, a critic of the culture? Or are we a witness and a testimony of Christ? Do we spend our time just making snarky comments about the world around us? Or are we inviting people to get to know the one who bled and died for us? Can we help but talk about the greatness and the grace and the love of our God? That's what Jesus wants left ringing in our ears. Are we a critic or are we a witness? Are are we a, a private student or a public witness? Part of being a witness is that we go public with it. We don't just keep it to ourselves, but we're willing to share it publicly and openly with others. 
See, a lot of times we take our faith and we make it something just of, of a private matter. I'm going to keep my faith to myself. But Jesus says we're not just to keep our faith to ourselves, but we are to be witnesses in the world to his identity and to his power, to his love, to his grace. And so is Jesus' main thing our main thing? Well, some of you here today might go, yes, yes. This is, I'm giving my life to this. I look around the room, I see your faces. I know this to be true of so many of you here. That's what is your, your guiding light, your principle, what your life is about. But let's say there are some here today who are struggling with this, who are wondering what it would look like for, for, for me to, to have a testimony, to be a witness for Christ. Here's a few ideas. The first one is, who are you praying for? Just think through your life. Who is someone in your life, whether it's somebody you work with, someone in your family, someone that is on your street, somebody that goes to your school, somebody that goes to your kid's school, somebody that's on your team, somebody that's on a team that you support? Just who is it? Pray for them. Pray that that God's truth would take root in that person's life. And and after you are praying for them, then, then think about who are you inviting in? Who are you inviting in? Who are you inviting to to come and follow Jesus with you, inviting to come to church with you, inviting to come to one of our men's or women's Bible studies, inviting them to bring their kids to Awana or to student ministry, inviting them to come and participate in some college life activity here at Wildwood, inviting them just to have a cup of coffee and and learn a little bit more about their story. See, as we're praying for people, the, the next logical step is for us to reach out and initiate and just to invite them in. And then a third thing that we might think about is, who are we sharing with? If we're to be a witness, then, then who is it that we're actually sharing what Jesus has done for us with? See, these are ways that we can make Jesus' main thing our main thing. There's a second question I want us to ask. And that second question I want to ask is this, does our ministry work unplugged? Does our ministry work unplugged? Now, in order for this question to to, to make some more sense, we need to again look at the context. The context takes us back to Acts 1, verses 4 and 5, where where Jesus gives the disciples really a pretty peculiar command. He says, "And, and while staying with them, Jesus ordered his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, just think about how odd that might have been. I mean, this was a group of people who had heard all of Jesus' sermons. They, they had his outlines in their version app. They had it all down. They, they knew his messages. They had heard him teach them many times. This is a group of people who had seen all the miracles that Jesus had worked, or at least most of them. This is a group of people who had interacted with him for 40 days post-resurrection. They were convinced of his resurrection. Why would they need to wait? I mean, they, they, they had the data. Why would they need to wait? But Jesus tells them to wait. We see hints of this also in Acts 1.8 where Jesus gives them a promise. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In other words, it hadn't happened yet. But he told them to wait for the Spirit, and Jesus says the Spirit will indeed come. And that's actually what happens in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 on this day of Pentecost. The word Pentecost really looks to a period of 50 days. It was 50 days after the Passover, 
How long had Jesus been resurrected? For 40 days he had been interacting with them. So about 10 days after the events of Acts 1-8, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. It says they were all together in one place and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has kept coming to empower the lives of believers ever since. Jesus told them to wait. But the question we need to ask is, why? Why did Jesus tell them to wait? Why was there this need for divine power? I mean, they, they, they'd heard him teach. They'd seen the miracles. They knew the message. Why the need for the Spirit? Well, it has to do with this thing called spiritual death. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Those who have not yet come to Christ, the Scripture describes as spiritually dead. And for something that is dead to come to life requires a resurrection. And friends, that's above your pay grade, at least on your own, right? So the reason why divine power is needed is because of this condition of spiritual death. It needs a divine intervention, which is why Jesus, as he gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, tells them what? I am with you always to the end of the age. Divine intervention is available. It's promised. It's around us. It's present in the moments of ministry, providing resurrection power. I love Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Resurrection power is available to deal with the issue of spiritual death. And it's not optional. Jesus would say in Luke's recording of the Great Commission in Luke 24, he says, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. He says, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Friends, for us to be a part of the ministry that God has called us to, We need to be plugged in to divine power. We simply are not strong enough on our own. We don't know enough on our own to do what God has called us to do. But when we plug into the Spirit's power, then God's work can happen in our world. So the question I would ask is, are we plugged in? Are we plugged in? And you might be thinking, well, how do I get plugged in? Well, guess what? I've got fantastic news for you. If you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, if you are a Christian, guess what resides within you? I know this to be true because the Scripture tells me this. If we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, God's Holy Spirit already resides in our lives. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. From the moment of our belief, the Spirit has sealed our souls. Friends, the Spirit is present inside of you. So if you have trusted in Christ, the Spirit is present within you. So how do you plug into the power source that is inside of your lives? Well, we do so by faith. We do so by faith. By by leaning on him, by depending upon him, understanding that God's Spirit is present within us, we lean on him and in prayer we ask his Spirit to empower the work that we are participating in. 
Friends, this is no different than today. I, I, in this week in preparation and this morning, even as I'm, I'm down front, I'm sitting there thinking, I am insufficient for this task. In and of myself, I do not have anything to offer. God, you've given me your word, but I need more than just to be accurate with your word. I need your spirit to do something. So Lord Jesus, do a work in the lives of people this day through your word. It's an expression of faith upon the Lord, tapping into the spirit's power. But as we pray and as we lean and as we depend, then we have to do what? We have to obey. See, I I can sit on the front row and I can pray for God to work, but at some point, you know, Greg stops playing and I got to come up and say something. I got to be obedient in the moment. Friends, this is no different from the work that y'all have. God has laid upon your heart a friend that doesn't know Christ and you're going to get together and have lunch. You, You hit your knees and you pray, Lord, open their eyes. May your spirit speak within me so that they would understand your truth clearly and may may they place their faith and trust in you. But then what do you have to do after that? You obey, you show up, and you you lean on what God has done and what he is doing. Faith is expressed through prayer and obedience. How do we become dependent? How How do we get plugged into the Spirit's power? Well, come this Wednesday night to Wildwood. How's that for an invitation? Want to get plugged into the Spirit's power? Come with it. Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying some wild phenomena is happening Wednesday night. What I am saying is this. As a church family, we're going to be gathering Wednesday night for an evening of prayer, kicking off this ministry year. There are so many things on our calendar as a church family, so many great opportunities. But friends, we don't think that the, the hope for Norman, the hope for the world, the hope for Wildwood, we don't think it's in our programming choices. We think it's in God working through those things, in those venues. And, but we don't want to take that for granted. So as a step of faith, as an act of faith, as a church family, we're going to gather in this room. We're going to alternate back and forth between singing praise to God and then circling up in small groups and spending a few minutes in prayer together for the year ahead. And guess what? We want all of you here for that. I hope that this room is not near big enough Wednesday night at six o'clock as we gather for prayer, but we're going to be gathering for prayer. And then the last thing I would say is that be bold, be bold. You know, if, if, if I think it just depends on me, I'm going to be really timid because I know my shortcomings. I know my flaws. But if I believe the, the Holy Spirit is at work, if I believe there's, there's spiritual power that is sufficient to raise the dead, that it's at work in me, that it's at work in you, guess what? We can be bold. We can be bold in our ministry. We can be bold in our outreach. We can be bold in inviting our community and the nations to follow Jesus with us. Be bold. Does our ministry work unplugged? Well, an unplugged ministry may be able to look like it has life, but it has no life. But with the Spirit's power, God is at work. Third question I want to ask is this. Is our scope wide enough? Is our scope wide enough? Inside of Acts 1-8 in this statement, Jesus initiates a, a scope that is very, very wide, very broad for ministry. After saying that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us and we'll be his witnesses, Jesus provides the scope of where that witness will go. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, these are three geographical areas. 
And it's fascinating for us to see that these three areas are all places where the gospel goes in the book of Acts alone. As a matter of fact, this verse, many scholars would see as an outline for the book of Acts. Just look at what we see. The first seven chapters of Acts, the activity takes place in the city of Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 11, it takes place primarily in the Judea and Samarian regions. And then from Acts 12 through 28, the gospel begins progressing to the ends of the earth through Asia into Europe and ultimately all the way to Rome. And so we see in the book of Acts, basically, somewhat of a fulfillment of Jesus' statement in Acts 1.8. But I think there's actually more to what Jesus was saying than just some geographical terms, just some places. I think he was reminding them of just how wide the scope of the gospel call was. So where do we see that? Well, let's look at these three areas. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, or Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, when we think of these three spheres, let's, let's run them through three different lenses. The first lens I want to run this through is the lens of people. When Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, here's what we do. Here's what you and I do. When we read that, we go, well, that's probably thinking, well, I get to talk to my neighbor. I get to talk to my, my friends about Jesus. But how would the disciples have understood that? How many of the disciples were from Jerusalem? Where were they from? They were from the northern part of the country. They were from the Galilean region. They actually avoided Jerusalem a lot of the times. And they had just been in Jerusalem, and what happened? The people of Jerusalem killed Jesus. So when Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, they'd be like, wait, 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 what? You want us to be your witnesses in this town after what they did to you here? He says, yeah, that's part of the scope. Not only that, but I want you to go to Judea, Samaria. They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. We've been on this three-year camping trip. There is something that you need to know and you need to be reminded of. Most of the time, when we went from Galilee to Jerusalem, we didn't cut through Samaria. Most of the time, we followed the Jordan River Valley and took the road up by Jericho so that we didn't have to walk through Samaria. That group of people, I mean, no way. I'm not going there. Jesus says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jerusalem, the people there and the people in Samaria, those people that had, had, had sold out to the world culture and had seen their version of their faith polluted by a number of worldly ideas, Jesus said, I want you to go there too. And then to the ends of the earth, are you kidding me? We want you to kick the Romans out. You want us to go there? That's the evil empire. No way. You said, oh, yeah, yeah. The scope is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It's all people. How about places? I want you to bear witness to me, Jesus says, where you are. It, they were in Jerusalem. That's where they were at that moment. Don't wait for ministry at some later point in life. Where you are, begin giving testimony to me when the Spirit comes. Judea, Samaria, that's near where they were. It'd be like saying, I want you to be my witness in Norman and then also in the greater Oklahoma, North Texas area. And then all the way to Rome, which was 1,400 miles away as the crow flew. In that day and age, that would have felt like an impossible journey. 
What was Jesus saying? People in all places are within my scope. That's how wide the scope is. And then how about proximity? By here, I don't mean physical proximity. I mean proximity to the truth. How much access did these three groups of people have to orthodox teaching and truth? Well, the people in Jerusalem, they had a lot. There was a a lot of access to the entire Old Testament. The people in Judea, Samaria, they had a, a little bit of it. It had been twisted. It had been edited. It had been confined. The people in Rome, they were the ends of the earth. They, they had very little understanding of the Jewish sacrificial system, of the temple, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus said, I don't care how much they know. I want you to take the gospel to them too. No matter where they are, no matter what they know, no matter what you have against them, they're within the scope of God's plan. Now, why? Why? Why is it so important for the scope to be this wide? Well, friends, 1 Timothy chapter 2, this set of verses that Bruce read for us earlier helps us remember why. I love these verses. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior who desires some people. Are you with me? Some people? No. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, it's, it's not sufficient for us to, to just say, you know, these people don't matter because they matter to God. It's not sufficient for us to say they'll figure it out on their own because there's only one mediator between God and man. The hope is Christ, and the vehicle to get the message of Christ to the people is through us. And so we are commissioned to be witnesses for Jesus with the widest scope possible. So is your scope wide enough? A couple of questions. Do you believe that Jesus' arms are wide enough to embrace all that we meet? Do we really believe that? Or are we self-selecting all the time? It's not worth sharing the gospel with this person. I'm not going to, to waste my time with that. Friends, we really believe that the arms of Christ are broad enough to embrace the lost around us. And then how are you engaging in world mission? You know, we've talked a lot about our personal involvement. I want to touch on just for a moment how we connect to what God is doing around the world. You know, as a church family, part of our great privilege is to pool our resources, to, to send missionaries to the world and to partner with people in various cultures who are sharing the gospel. Um, it's a great privilege and joy for us to do that, but it's connected to this verse. The scope is so wide. Therefore, we proclaim the truth so broadly. But how can you personally be a part of this? Well, the first thing you can do is pray. You can go to our website. You can go look at the list of missionaries under the, the mission sec- section there that Wildwood has the privilege of supporting, and you can pray for those ministries. You can go for a walk downstairs at Wildwood, down our, our hallway where all the pictures are hanging of a number of our missionary partners, and, and you can pray for them by name. It's one thing that we can do. Second thing we can do is we can support. We can support by giving finances. We can support by, by hosting missionaries as they come back in furlough from the field, a way for us to connect and be a part of what God is doing around the world. 
And the third thing that we can do is we can go. You know, across our morning today, there are a lot of people who are going to be here at Wildwood. And I just have to believe that God is raising up some of you to go to the mission field and proclaim Christ among the lost. If that's the case, then consider this morning an encouraging affirmation to that call that you might have the words of Christ reverberating in your ears and that you might represent us and Christ as you go and tell others about him. See, friends, our scope needs to be wide enough. Is Jesus' main thing our main thing? Does our ministry work unplugged? And is our scope wide enough? Answering these questions, we're reminded that we get to be for the community and for the nations. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for just the chance to gather today as a church family and to be challenged by this verse. Lord, thank you for how much is in there uh, that we might, might drink deeply from your truth today. And Lord, that our lives might be characterized by your great mission, that you would allow us as a church and us individually to be on mission with you in this life. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.